Hi everybody, it's James Rudd with the Heart Podcast. Welcome to another episode where we discuss inevitably COVID-19 and the heart. Today I'm joined by special guest Dr. Suk Nidja from Imperial College and Hammersmith Hospital in London. We're talking about a paper he's just published with some colleagues, which is all about the optimal management of patients with acute coronary syndromes in the era of COVID-19. Hopefully you enjoy the discussion. We get quite deeply into the direct effects of COVID infection on the heart and the indirect effects of COVID more generally on the health service. I'm very grateful for the nice reviews people are leaving on iTunes, so please continue to do so. And continue also, if you can, to spread the word on social media, tell your friends. It really does help us reach new listeners. I hope you enjoyed the show. Maybe we can start by uh, asking you to introduce yourself for the heart audience. Uh, thanks, James. Um, so I'm Suk Nidger. I'm an interventional cardiologist. I, I work in London. I work across two very busy um, trusts. I work at uh, Imperial College uh, NHS Healthcare Trust, as well as Chelsea and Westminster. And I split my time uh, equally uh, across both both systems. Um, both are quite different, uh, but at the same time have a lot of similarities also. And uh, I, my clinics are all general and I cover all aspects of uh, cardiology. Uh, but my real focus uh, has been in the cath lab and, um, uh, you know, in the treatment of patients who've had heart attack and acute coronary syndromes. Brilliant. And, and recently you've published uh, with some co-authors uh, from your institution an Education in Heart article, which is called Optimal Management of Acute Coronary Syndromes in the Era of COVID-19. We've had a few podcasts over the last few months concerning COVID-19, but I think with the prospect of a second wave circa on the horizon, um, it, it I was really keen to get you on to, to talk about it some more. So perhaps you can give us a little bit of the background to the piece that you wrote for Heart. So what was the, the motivation? Oh, well, th- thanks so much for that, James. So I think uh, you're absolutely right. There is going to be another wave. And although we seem to be at a, an OK stage at the moment, we're beginning to see signs of COVID uh, coming back. And so it was very clear to us that we needed to uh, adjust the way we work. And many uh, physicians and doctors and cardiology departments around the country have completely altered the structure uh, and the way that they do things. And this upheaval has really disturbed uh, people's balances and, and the way they do things. And and yet, whilst we've made a huge amount of changes in London, when I talk to some of my colleagues around the country, they, they've made very little changes. So uh, people's experience has been very variable. And what we wanted to do was to translate some of what we had experienced in our institutions across uh, into a publication that could then be used elsewhere, principally because I think in London we've had a, a lot more cases than in other parts of the country. And so we've kind of suffered that brunt already. And it's probably worth sharing that learning uh, across uh, across the wider audience. And shall we start by talking about the, the consequences of COVID-19, both the direct consequences, as you described them in your article, and also the indirect complications. I don't know where you want to start. Uh, well, so which one uh, takes your fancy to, to discuss first? Well, I think it's it's fair to say that, you know, COVID-19, although as cardiologists, we always want to make everything about ourselves. Uh, and there has been a drive to, to make uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 a, a cardiac condition. I think it's fair to say that it, it is a respiratory illness predominantly. Uh, and, uh, you know, the information is coming out from a scientific point of view that it does appear to have significant impact on endothelium. And then there are two definite effects uh, on the heart. One is a direct effect um, 
principally by causing an illness in the body, much like other viruses do. And we've seen this with influenza and we've seen this with um, uh, either other coronaviruses like MERS and, and um, uh, the original SARS, that there is an impact on the heart. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But then there is also an indirect effect through system uh, changes. And you know, as we've seen in the UK, there was a wide scale shutdown of all the usual care and services. And that has an indirect on patient, indirect effect on patients because there are uh, less clinics available. They, they don't get their routine testing. They may not get the procedure that they've been waiting for. Uh, and then that has an impact on patients as well. So there are two components. If we go back to thinking about the direct components, we've definitely seen an increase in patients uh, having myocardial infarction, uh, in having a, an elevation of troponin, and also in patients uh, presenting with a form of myocarditis or changes, uh, certainly on imaging tests, and we can argue over the significance over that. Uh, and then there are patients who have some other form of cardiovascular illness in the form of venothrombotic uh, disease, and we've seen increase in PEs and DVTs. So these are what I would classify as the direct, although it's not perhaps not necessarily the virus that's causing it directly as per se, but it seems to be triggering an inflammatory response in the body, uh, an elevation of uh, cytokines that then seem to cause this manifestation. And so that's what I would classify as a direct effect, whereas the indirect effects are those things that affect uh, change at a system level, which then impacts our patients. Can, let's start then with the, the system level stuff, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. you, you report in your paper, uh, there's been a, between a 20 and 40% reduction in, in ST elevation MI presentations, certainly during the lockdown period, and even greater reductions in non-STEMI uh, presentations. Uh, can you talk about that? Any insights into, into why that might be? Is it simply that people were reluctant to, to seek medical help? Yeah, I think this there's, this is a really fascinating um, area and that we really didn't expect this. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, when people were first learning about um, COVID-19, I have some friends who work out in China. I have some friends that work out uh, in Italy. And they were sending me messages saying this, this is very real. This is causing a major problem. And we're seeing a lot of patients have myocardial infarction. And at the same time, you'll remember there were lots of uh, publications coming out of how uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19 was manifesting with um, so-called STEMI mimic with significant ST elevation despite normal coronary arteries, which I think we've come to appreciate is a form of myocarditis now. And really, we were really uh, worried that we were going to be overwhelmed. I think there was a feeling that in the United Kingdom, the primary uh, angioplasty services, which are really quite well honed now around the country, would be overwhelmed with patients in fulminant COVID-19 or those with uh, asymptomatic carriers coming in with um, uh, and then spreading it to the team. And although in big tertiary centres, perhaps that's less, slightly less of a concern because you have so many cath labs and so many members of staff, in smaller units with two or three cath labs or one or two cath labs, you can imagine if one or two members of staff become infected, then that can wipe out your whole surface. So we were worried that we were going to see an overwhelming number of cases with ST elevation. What we actually saw was a profound reduction. And this is not just seen in the United Kingdom. This has been now published in Italy. It's been published in Spain. There has been a, a paper that came out of Hong Kong saying there was a 90% reduction in STEMI uh, presentations. Obviously, the province of Hong Kong is relatively small. Um, but uh, this appears to be because of messages of staying at home. And uh, these are the kind of unintended uh, consequences that occur when we make these messages. And I think patients were... Um, uh, 
uh, were told that the NHS was under a huge amount of pressure and that we were not able to provide the service that uh, patients had come to expect. And therefore, many patients chose to stay at home uh, despite having uh, important uh, and potentially very dangerous symptoms. And I've seen cases like this. I'm sure you have too. I've had, uh, I remember very clearly treating uh, a, a bus driver who had suffered at home for more than five days with very severe chest pain. And he actually came in uh, essentially moribund when he presented from cardiogenic shock as a consequence of holding off coming into hospital simply because he didn't want to overwhelm the health service with, um, despite the fact that he was having severe chest pain. So we've definitely seen that. Now, there are some other factors as well. And I think one factor might be that when you reduce the activity of the nation overall, for example, many, pa many patients or many people were furloughed, were staying at home, perhaps weren't doing the stressful early morning commute uh, in the morning and the evening, particularly those living in major metropolitan areas, that there was almost certainly a reduction in stress and blood pressure and all of these kind of factors that may well have led to a slight reduction in heart attacks as a consequence of that. Some people have even postulated that there may well be a protective effect. I don't think that's true. I don't think there's any data to suggest that there is any protective um, impact from the virus. I think it's more likely to be because patients were worried about attending and they were also perhaps doing less activity, so getting less symptoms. Certainly all those patients with chronic stable angina, if you're essentially housebound, you were less likely to have symptoms and therefore less likely to present into hospital. So I think that's a, a significant component of it. And then at the same time, there was also a reduction in, in, in referrals. And we've seen this as well and in London, where we've got literally we've got so many hospitals, you, you can't throw a stone without hitting a hospital. The, um, what we found is that uh, getting patients from one hospital to another at the height of the pandemic was very difficult. So traditional primary angioplasty centres, big tertiary hospitals, were sitting there geared up and ready to go when actually the STEMIs and the NSTEMIs were sitting in uh, smaller district general hospitals. And uh, patient, we, had, we struggled to be able to transfer the patients in a timely fashion. And so they were then getting their treatment and revascularization done in those smaller hospitals. And so I think that's also had an impact as well. Uh, recently, um, Nick Curzon and Mamas Mamas have just published um, the UK data looking at the BSIS database. And they've had to be very pragmatic in the way they've collected that data. And they've shown uh, around a 42% reduction in the United Kingdom in STEMI presentation. Um, looking forward to seeing what the NSTEMIs are. Harder to estimate, I suspect, uh, because not all NSTEMIs will be logged, uh, certainly if, if people felt they were type 2 MIs. But you know, there will undoubtedly be a reduction purely because there was a reduction in patients attending hospital services. And in terms of, um, again, moving perhaps a little bit to the direct effects on the heart. So you've discussed type 1 and type 2 MI, mm -hmm. inflammation, secondary myocarditis, Takotsubo, pulmonary embolus. If we just assume for the sake of argument that a patient's having a common or garden STEMI, how would you say that COVID-19 has affected how cases such as such as STEMIs have mentioned? You, you, you've talked a bit about uh, lack of transfer between centers, but if somebody, if somebody pitches up to a center with full PCI capability and a primary yes. rotor, how have things changed for you in terms of managing STEMI patients? So there's a, there's a few things there. There's uh, if you if a patient is in um, a primary capable hospital, then I think that there is very little difference from the patient's point of view. The um, people were concerned that it would be difficult to diagnose. Uh, 
my colleague, unfortunately, in patients with COVID-19. Um, I think that's not the case. The patients that we've seen have all had classical symptoms, even if they've had very severe COVID-19 infection. And then those patients who don't have COVID-19 or are completely well and have no awareness of it, uh, they will continue to present in a normal way. So identifying someone having a heart attack, I don't think is a huge problem. From the physician's point of view, um, the, uh, there is a slight delay in uh, gowning up and putting on the uh, protective equipment, PPE. And that's borne out in the data that's now been published by Mammoth's group, because they've shown there is a slight increase in uh, door to balloon time from a national average of last year of around 37 minutes to around 48 minutes. Now, that doesn't sound a lot, but of course, if the overall average is changing, that means there's been a really quite a large spread of change across the population. And certainly in my experience, getting the whole team gowned up and get the patient into the lab, it certainly added uh, a, a little bit of time. Now, we've always been taught that time is muscle, and so the longer-term implications of, of these changes won't really be noted for some time, because, of course, the longer the vessel is closed, the greater the myocardial damage and uh, potential heart failure later. And I don't think that will be borne out in your inpatient mortality or your 30-day mortality, but may well have an impact later down the line. Okay. And in terms of uh, the procedure itself, uh, there have been some mentions in the literature of a heavy thrombus load. I don't know if that extends to the coronary arteries or whether that's more of a venous thrombus issue. Is that something you've you've come across? Well, the cases I've dealt with, uh, I felt that they have had an increase in thrombus burden. But of course, uh, I, I speak entirely biased because, of course, I've sat and read all these articles and that will influence my perception of thrombus burden. The um, Lots of people have been seeing this uh, as, as anecdotes. And uh, there's been a recent um, review article in published in Jack uh, suggesting this finding as well, although the the way to quantify this is, is, is not so clear. The Certainly in the patients I've seen, because many of them have delayed in attending into the hospital, the thrombus burden is quite high. And so and that but that's a, a feature of later presentation rather okay. than uh, COVID-19 in itself. And how about the management of non-STEMI? How has that changed in the COVID era? Well, this is a, an important factor because the um, uh, NSTEMI should be treated in uh, as a normal way as possible. I think patients should be uh, seen and assessed, clinical examination and taking a really detailed history to understand what has caused this is really important. And looking at an ECG to look for high risk features is also very important. And those patients who've got high risk features with ST depression, uh, wide, widespread T wave change should be offered an early revascularization, so early uh, trip into the cath lab than those who have little or no change. And those patients who've got an elevated gray score also would, be bene would find benefit from an early um, um, uh, invasive procedure. Now, what we found is that many of these patients who've got COVID-19, for example, they've got a pneumonia and they may well be having a type 2 myocardial infarction. And so trying to pick that apart is the real clinical challenge and conundrum for us. And although we have uh, been OK uh, for the time being and we've not been completely saturated uh, in this first wave, I suspect as we go into winter, and we begin to see the more common or garden pneumonia, um, pneumonia infections, or those patients coming in with uh, atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, all of these kind of troponin rises are going to be harder to discern. What we've erred on uh, is to tend to give 
um, medications like aspirin and clopidogrel. We give everybody a low molecular weight heparin. And then we try to get the patient into the cath lab at an early opportunity, ideally within 24 hours, because our, our feeling was if we can exclude an obstructive cause and the patient is clinically well, we can get the patient out. Now, in our hospital throughout the COVID pandemic, what we've done is to get patients home within a 24 to 48 hour uh, period. And so we've tried to shave off time that they're an inpatient. And the reason we've done that was out of fear of the impact on bed pressure, but also the slight concern that there may be other patients on the ward that have the virus that hasn't been picked up by the nasopharyngeal um, swab that's performed on admission. And therefore, uh, a patient that hasn't got the virus may be at risk of picking it up from another patient or even staff member. So to minimise inpatient stay, I think, is super important. And, and to achieve that, we've removed a lot of perhaps extraneous testing. We've removed inpatient MRI, we've removed uh, inpatient um, very sophisticated other tests that may perhaps add little, such as um, uh, PET. If it, if it can wait, then we allow the patient home without it. What we've struggled with is with echo, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll hold my hands up. It's something that I imagine all hospital services do struggle with, of getting a good, high-quality inpatient echo, because, of course, it is an intimate examination. You know, the, the, the physiologist will often be very close to the patient for quite a long period of time. So we focused on doing very... Um, very directed echoes that are there to answer the question and not very prolonged. And we've also used a lot of handheld scanners as well to try to simplify the echo process. And just to jump back very quickly to, to STEMI, you mentioned in your Education in Heart piece that thrombolysis has been used uh, quite successfully, often in conjunction with a tertiary centre about the decision whether to transfer or whether to go with thrombolysis. Have you got anything to say about that, Sook? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a somewhat controversial area because, of course, the the national um, uh, the national policy is to maintain primary angioplasty services, and I think that's absolutely right, and that that's what we should push for. Uh, primary angioplasty is better than thrombolysis when it is available in a timely fashion, and, and I think the data for that is very clear. Uh, I'm also part of the, the BSIS uh, committee, the British Cardiovascular Intervention Society, and uh, the message from our president, uh, Nick Curzon, has been very clear that uh, angioplasty remains the gold standard treatment. However, there has been circumstances where it, we haven't had it available. And in that situation, we should consider thrombolysis. It, it's been a mainstay of um, STEMI treatment around the world for many, many years and is reliable uh, if we accept that it will fail in around a quarter of patients. And what we've uh, did, and in the example you're alluding to, we've had patients who were unable uh, to be transferred into the tertiary centre uh, because they were critically unwell with COVID-19, very breathless, not suitable for intubation. And then we've given them thrombolysis. And in order to do that, in order to remove the stress from an individual doctor, what we've done is had very fast and nimble MDTs, which we've done electronically. And I know the NHS has traditionally been somewhat slow to absorb um, changes in IT, but in the COVID situation, we've seen quite dramatic changes in how IT has been absorbed. And what we've used is um, video conferencing performed by the patient's bedside with uh, at least two interventional cardiologists who can then agree that it would be appropriate for the patient to have a, a lytic rather than having a PCI. And we give an example of a case who did very well uh, in our paper. It was very unwell, wasn't suitable for transfer, and he responded incredibly well to the lytic. In fact, it was remarkable to see how quickly he responded 
in terms of his other respiratory status as well. And it may have been that he had widespread um, uh, thrombi, potentially even um, small microemboli within his lungs, as has been seen in, in many um, autopsy series. And he did incredibly well after having the lytic. Uh, we still erred on the side of caution. We did take him to the cath lab uh, a few days later, once everything had settled down. But we did that as a semi-elective procedure. And um, we found his right coronary artery, which was the culprit, uh, did have thrombus still in it, but was patent, and we were able to stent that relatively easily and achieve a good result. So it's certainly something that should be thought about. I would ask uh, cath labs and cardiac units around the country to prepare and you know scrub off the uh, uh, the old boxes because it's been a long time. I, I, prior to this, I, I could only remember thrombolizing someone as a house officer, um, and uh, and so it was quite some time ago. And we um, have to refresh our protocols, understand what works best. There's a number of different lytics. Uh, we, you obviously have to use what's available to you. Those that can be given as a single agent without having to have multiple boluses is clearly better, less uh, stress on the nursing staff. Um, and of course, even if you're going to give a lytic, it's important for the tertiary central, the primary angioplasty service, to know uh, that this patient is there because they may still need rescue angioplasty. And that will still be needed in around a quarter of the cases because the, the STS segments don't come down. And although we think of facilitated PCI as um, being inadequate and the studies in the early 2000s um, and in the 10s showed that it wasn't quite what we wanted it to be, uh, in the modern era where we're doing radial procedures, I think the bleeding risk is somewhat lower. But of course, any delay in getting the patient into the cath lab, failure of reperfusion may mean that patient is somewhat sicker, may need adjunctive therapy like a balloon pump or even um, other impeller devices and things like that, whereupon you're going to have to go on an adventure in the groin, which uh, in the context of someone who has a thrombolytic on board uh, can be dangerous. So all of these things have to be thought out very carefully um, with a very clear plan in advance before uh, you open up the uh, lytic vial. Brilliant. And just as we as we come towards the end, Sirk, towards the end of your review, you talk about novel pathways, new ways of working, how we open up to elective work again. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Maybe some of the changes, things that are different now as you start to open up to routine practice again? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, during the, the height of the pandemic, a normal elective work uh, had to be um, come to a stop. And one of the things that we did in our institution was to try and identify those patients who were at risk of missing out on their procedures. And those patients with you know, life-threatening arrhythmia, ventricular tachycardia, those type of things are very easy to spot. Harder to understand the risk in patients with chronic stable angina, probably relatively safe to leave behind and wait unless they had left main or uh, proximal LED. But uh, now that we're kind of trying to go back to normal, we've had to have fairly complex pathways of swabbing patients before they come into the hospital and then asking them to self-isolate. And whilst we've had a variety of different paths, I think at one point we were asking patients to self-isolate for 14 days, we've now settled on a 72-hour period. So patients come in, they have a swab, uh, we ask them to self-isolate for 72 hours, and then if uh, it's all negative, they come into what we call the gold zone, which is a highly um, uh, protected a part of the hospital in which uh, all patients with COVID-19 aren't allowed to go. Staff members have to be swabbed to be in there. 
and we try and protect the patient as much as possible. And I think that's something that we're going to have to try and maintain because I think the government's recognised that perhaps the big reduction in elective work uh, just isn't going to be possible if there is another wave. Then one of the other things that we've done and something that I think many of us have had to get used to is things like outpatient clinics. We've moved to using a telephone as a primary way of communicating with our patients. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I found this very straightforward. All the patients were at home. Uh, everyone was uh, in lockdown and this wasn't so uh, difficult. What I found in more recent weeks and months has been that often we ring the patient at their time of their appointment and they're actually uh, in uh, Tesco uh, and they've forgotten all about their appointment. So it becomes slightly less um, uh, helpful at that point. I think we've tried also uh, working on video consultations. This does work in a cohort of patients. We've One of my colleagues in the primary hypertension service at the Hammersmith swears that this is the way forward and has been doing it. He has a slightly younger cohort of patients, so finds it easier. I think in those who are dealing with, say, for example, heart failure cohort of patients where the average age may be uh, in your 70s or 80s, may struggle with using the complexity of video calling. But again, this is something that we have to embrace uh, and push forward because ultimately, I think some of these things, some of these changes are going to stay. I think if we were to say to patients, no, you need to come in just for me to tell you that your stress echo was normal, uh, they'd, say, they'd say, why? And actually now I don't have a very good reason. I would say, absolutely, we can do, we can run a telephone service. And that's something that we've been working on is to, to design a new way of working, uh, which is a little bit more nimble and less uh, bound by traditional hospital ways of working. I've also noticed in my own practice in Cambridge that we're doing far far more MDTs, uh, particularly with heart surgeons, uh, trying to decide, for example, you know, the best way of revascularizing uh, elective patients. And you've you've probably noticed similar things. Whereas before we'd all gather in a room, now it's it tends to be on uh, on Zoom or some other suitable platform. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So this this is. Uh, in a way, this is probably for the best. So uh, for many uh, cardiologists practicing in the UK, they'll know that the the MDT or the JCC, as we tend to call it, uh, tends to be sometimes a, a bit of theatre uh, in which there is um, a lot of uh, <laughs> fighting and um, arguments, sometimes not sure who it's for the benefit of. Uh, but all of this has been removed in the COVID-19 era, partly because uh, cardiac surgery was so constrained in London I, I don't know whether you guys know but it was um, there were only three hospitals performing cardiac surgery in London and all the patients had to go through a fairly complex system of MDTs but we've moved to having a very nimble MDT performed every day uh, and that's to speed the patient's journey it's it's not efficient to wait for a magical day in the week um, waiting for this MDT decision when what you can have is the uh, the, uh, the interventionist has performed the original antigram procedure discussing the case with the ward consultant uh, who, um, who may be of any other flavor of cardiology and together with a surgeon and as long as there's enough people on the call uh, you can make decisions quickly and speed the patient's journey through and I think that's far more efficient and again that's going to be something that we stick with uh, once all of this is over. Brilliant. Well, I want to thank you very much indeed, Suk. Unless you have anything else you want to, to share with the audience. No, well, I think the key message to all, all of our um, uh, colleagues around the country is that we don't know what's going to happen next, but we must keep selling, sending the same message to all of our patients that we are uh, on site, that we're available and that we're, uh, that we're open and ready for business and that patients, particularly if they're having severe chest pains, that they must come into the hospital. And I've been really pleased to see this message spread over Twitter and other social media tools. Um, and so I think we just need to keep pushing for that uh, going forward. 
Brilliant. Well, thanks uh, very much indeed for your time. And the article, I believe, will be free or is free already. Certainly, it'll be free for at least two weeks after the release of the podcast if it's not already open access. Uh, so everybody can enjoy it. And uh, thank you very much for writing it, Sir. No problem at all. Thanks so, so much, James. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. And I've been listener, long-term listener, and I really enjoyed um, uh, listening to all, all the podcasts you've done over the last few years. Thank you so much. Uh, the check's in the post. Thank you. Thank you.